This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Ghosts in the Attic, where I share cases of people who experience strange noises and disturbances inside their homes, only to discover that someone was lurking within their very walls, just waiting for a chance to attack. In this final episode of the series, a disturbed young man goes from burglarizing homes to stalking young girls in their own home before committing a shocking multiple murder. This is Chapter 3 of Ghosts in the Attic, the case of Daniel LaPlante. In a small Massachusetts town, a widowed father was raising his two daughters after the tragic death of his wife. She had died the previous year after a battle with cancer. The girls were barely into their teens when their mother was ripped out of their lives so cruelly. Their father did the best that he could to see to the needs of his two teenage daughters. The girls missed their mother desperately, so much so that they got an idea in their heads to try and make contact with her from beyond. One evening, when their father was away working his shift as a bus driver, the girls took it upon themselves to conduct a seance in their basement, hoping to communicate with their mother's spirit. It was a crisp fall evening, and as the wind whistled outside and the evening grew dark, the girls made their way downstairs to the basement with a couple of candles and a book checked out from the library on how to conduct a seance. They sat across from each other on the cold cement floor of the basement and grasped each other's hands. With their eyes closed, the older girl began reciting the words she'd read in the book that the instructions said would open a portal to communicate with the dead. The girls at first felt awkward about attempting such a thing. They weren't quite sure they believed it would work, but felt they had to try if there was even a slight chance that they could hear from their mother just one more time. With their eyes shut in concentration, they began to ask their mom to make herself known. After a couple of minutes of silence, they tried again, this time asking more insistently for her spirit to come forward and present itself. All of a sudden, the girls heard a light tapping noise. Their eyes flew open, and they looked around, and then at each other, slightly embarrassed, believing it was probably just a tree branch knocking against the side of the house as the wind picked up outside. Then there was a loud knock, which couldn't be mistaken this time. It had been loud enough to cause both girls to jump. They leapt to their feet and looked around the dark room, but saw no one. They were both starting towards the stairs, more than a little startled now, when the knocking became loud, insistent banging. It seemed to come from everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Truly frightened now, the girls dashed upstairs, slamming the basement door behind them. After their hearts stopped pounding, they both agreed never to try that again. But after that night, several times when the girls were alone in the house, they began to hear random noises, 
sometimes tapping, other times banging, coming from the walls and ceilings. Frightened, they finally reported to their father what had happened, but he said they'd probably just spooked themselves and were letting their imaginations run wild. After a couple of weeks, the noises stopped, and the girls thought their father must have been right. At least, they hoped so. But out of the blue, the tapping and knocking began again. This time, the girls were sure it was coming from the basement. Taking a large knife along for protection, they were determined to find out what was causing these disturbances. They walked slowly down the steps to the basement and switched on the light. When they looked across the room, they began to scream. There on the far wall, written in what appeared to be blood-red letters, a message was written. I'm in your room. Come find me. Screaming, the girls ran back upstairs as fast as they could and called their father, begging him to come home. When he arrived, it took several minutes to calm down his daughters before he was able to enter the basement and see the ominous words written on the wall for himself. When he did, he was startled, but once he saw the scrawled message up close, he discovered it had not been written in blood, but ketchup. He could have believed his daughters were playing a prank if he hadn't witnessed for himself how completely terrified they were when he'd arrived home. He returned upstairs, and just as he entered the living room where the girls sat huddled together, they all heard it. Banging noises, as well as heavy footsteps, were coming from upstairs now. The girls began to shriek as their father headed upstairs to investigate. They begged him not to go, but he was determined to get to the bottom of things. He in no way believed that there was a ghost in the house, or that the girls had opened up a portal to the spirit world by conducting a seance, as had been their fear. No, he knew there had to be a practical explanation, and he was going to find out what it was. Following the noise down the hall, he realized it was coming from the master bedroom. He opened the door and peered into the darkened room. Against the far wall near the window, he saw a figure. He quickly switched on the light, just as the figure turned towards him. At first, it appeared to be a woman, and his heart thumped in his chest for just a second, as his first instinct was to believe he was seeing his dead wife. The figure was clothed in a dress that he was sure had belonged to his wife. But as it turned towards him, he realized he was seeing a flesh-and-blood person wearing a disheveled blonde wig with its face smeared with makeup, creating a grotesque mask. He began to call out to the stranger standing in his bedroom. The stranger pulled the wig off his head, revealing himself to be a young man. He raised his arm and the man could see the intruder was brandishing a small hatchet. He began to advance towards him in a threatening way. The man turned to escape and ran as fast as he could down the stairs, calling to his daughters to run. The three of them ran through the first floor of the house and to the front door, pursued by the hatchet-wielding stranger. The trio yelled for help, rousing the neighbors from their otherwise peaceful evening. The police were called, and when they arrived at the house, they conducted a search while the homeowner and his children sat shivering with cold and fright, watched over by other officers. At first, the officers found no one in the house, but as they continued to search, they heard a rustling sound coming from inside a closet. Fleeing open the door, they looked inside, but found nothing. Training their powerful police-issued flashlights inside, one of the officers noticed something. There was a crack in the wall on the far side of the closet. 
he realized that this was some sort of hidden door, perhaps to a crawl space. Then he heard the noise again, coming from beyond the closet wall. The officer unholstered his weapon and called out, Come out with your hands first. After a beat, the door inside the closet opened just a fraction. Show your hands first, the officer commanded. Slowly, a figure emerged. It was a slightly built young man or boy. His face was still covered in the smeared makeup. The officers quickly handcuffed the young man and escorted him out of the house and to a patrol car. As the family looked on in stunned silence, the oldest daughter recognized the boy in handcuffs as someone she was acquainted with. His name was Daniel LaPlante, and she'd even agreed to a date with him once, months earlier. They had met in town for their first date, but she had quickly found him strange, and the date was awkward. She had ended the evening early and had not seen him again. Questioned by officers, the family explained how the girls had been hearing sounds and experiencing strange occurrences in their home for weeks. Television sets would be turned on after they'd left the room, lights flicked on and off, furniture was found moved around, etc. Officers would learn that LaPlante had been hiding in the walls and crawl spaces of the family's home for weeks, tormenting the girls and terrifying them by pretending to be their deceased mother, visiting from beyond the grave. LaPlante was committed to Bridgewater State Hospital for psychiatric evaluation and was charged with several crimes, including breaking and entering, attempted assault, and malicious destruction of property. The girls were terrified upon learning that LaPlante had been stalking them from inside their own home, living behind their walls, and watching them as they remained unaware of his presence. They were unable to sleep in the home any longer, realizing that at any moment, their stalker could have emerged from his hiding place to assault or even kill them. They refused to return to live in the house that had held a terrifying secret inside its walls for so long. The family stayed in a hotel for a few weeks until they located another home to move into out of state. Okay, that story was super creepy, but not exactly true. As I was researching this case, I read several reports in newspapers, magazines, and even in documentaries that told the story as I've just relayed to you, but it just didn't sit right with me. It sounded more like an urban legend than a true story, which is why I didn't use the family's name in this account. Turns out, even the name that is so often mentioned when this story is told is made up as well. So I did a little bit more digging and found out the true story so I could bring it to you. Stories like this usually begin with a true account of a crime that has a weird twist, but in the retelling, it often becomes bigger and more outlandish, taking on a life of its own. This is what happened in this case, I believe. My first clue that the story had been embellished was the hatchet-wielding stranger dressed as a woman detail. I mean, that's a ripoff of Norman Bates if I ever heard one. Just a bit too cutesy. But Daniel LaPlante was and is a real person who did stalk a family from within their own home. But the real story need not have been embellished because Daniel LaPlante would go on to commit an even more shocking and extremely brutal crime not long after this strange tale came to light. I'll give you all of the details of the true life and crimes of Daniel LaPlante after this short break. Daniel J. LaPlante was born on May 16, 1970, and grew up in Townsend, Massachusetts. 
Townsend is a small town located in the northern part of the state, close to the New Hampshire state border. Daniel's mother and father divorced when he was a boy. His mother, Elaine, remarried a man named David Moore, and together they raised Daniel and his siblings. It has been reported that Daniel's early life was marked by physical and psychological abuse, specifically by his biological father. I could not find any official reports to corroborate these claims, but what is known is that Daniel exhibited psychological issues of his own from an early age. Was this as a result of abuse? I cannot answer that definitively, but can only speculate that it may have been a factor in his later behavior. Daniel struggled as a student at St. Bernard's High School. He played football and ran track, but was described by those students who remembered him as a loner who didn't talk much and who rarely, if ever, attended parties or other social events. He often looked unkempt and suffered from severe acne. Daniel's teenage years were described as troubled. He began exhibiting signs of antisocial behavior in his early teens. By his mid-teens, he was skipping school and spending his days breaking into homes while the owners were away. He'd steal items such as electronics and jewelry, but rather than committing these crimes for monetary gain, it seems that Daniel particularly enjoyed the power he felt in occupying the home of a stranger and spending time there doing what he pleased without their knowledge. Sometimes he'd enter a house and not take any items, but simply move them around so when the homeowners arrived, they'd become aware that someone had been rifling through their things. Sometimes he'd help himself to food. Other times, he'd pour beer or wine into a glass and leave it out untouched before taking his leave. By 1986, Daniel LaPlante had broken into several homes in Townsend and the surrounding area. In December 1986, Daniel LaPlante broke into the home of the Bowen family in the town of Pepperell. Frank Bowen lived in the home with his two daughters, Tina and Karen. Some reports identified one of the girls as LaPlante's ex-girlfriend, but whether he actually dated the girl had only gone out with her once, or simply had taken an interest in her without her knowledge and then broke into her home, is unclear. On December 8th, LaPlante entered the Bowen home while they were away and vandalized it, smearing mayonnaise and ketchup on the walls and plunging butcher knives into the drywall. When the family returned home that evening, they were accompanied by one of the girl's friends, Kathleen Knapp. As they entered, they observed the mess and destruction of their home. Unable to believe what they were seeing, they continued walking towards the back of the house to determine if there was any more damage. As they passed one room located off a hallway, LaPlante jumped out at them, wearing a black ninja-style mask and wielding a hatchet. Frank Bowen pushed the girls into a bedroom and barricaded the door. Daniel apparently didn't attempt to break the door down, but continued to gather up valuables and cash from inside the house as the family remained locked and terrified behind the bedroom door. One of the girls was helped out through a window by the others and ran for help. When the police arrived, LaPlante was gone. The girls were too frightened to remain in the home, so Frank Bowen booked a room at a nearby hotel while the police searched for the intruder. Two days later, Bowen returned to the house alone to retrieve some clothes and other belongings. While inside the house, he heard a noise from upstairs. Bowen called the police. When the police arrived, they did a thorough search of the house. Daniel LaPlante was discovered hiding in the cellar. He was arrested. LaPlante was charged as a juvenile and sent to the State Department of Youth Services Detention Center to await a hearing on charges of four counts of kidnapping, four counts of armed assault inside a dwelling, breaking and entering, larceny, 
and malicious destruction of property. After LaPlante spent several months locked up at the youth detention center, the prosecutor asked for his case to be transferred to adult court. The judge granted this, and as a result, the teen was now eligible to be released on bond. The bail amount had been set at $100,000. Elaine Moore, by mortgaging the LaPlante's home, was able to pay a bond company $10,000 to have her son released from jail. LaPlante returned home to his family in October of 1987. But his life of crime was just beginning. LaPlante continued to burglarize homes, always choosing to break and enter during the daytime when the occupants were away. On October 14, 1987, he broke into the home of Raymond Bindell, a neighbor who lived on the same street as the LaPlante family. From Bindell's home, LaPlante stole two 22 caliber guns in their holsters, as well as a large amount of cash. Three weeks after the burglary, David Moore, Daniel's stepfather, found one of the guns in a laundry basket in his stepson's room. Daniel lied about where he had obtained the gun and said he'd had it for over a year. Maybe it's just me, but if my 16-year-old was in the possession of a firearm that I knew nothing about, I'd probably take it from him, or at the minimum, ask a few more questions. It appears that neither of these things happened. Daniel's brother Stephen recalled that his brother had come into a significant amount of cash around this time. Where the money came from, Stephen could not say. Daniel had been unemployed at the time. Daniel and Stephen LaPlante had a friend named Michael Poloski, who they hung out with quite a bit. Michael also reported that Daniel had money to burn during the fall of 1987. About a month after the Bindell burglary, Daniel broke into another home. This residence was located just a quarter mile behind the LaPlante home that could be reached by walking directly through a wooded area that separated the two homes. The home belonged to the Gustafson family. Andrew Gustafson, 34, was an attorney in Townsend. His wife Priscilla, 33, taught at the local co-op preschool. They had two children, Abigail, age 7, and Billy, who just turned 5. Billy attended the preschool where his mother taught. The Gustafsons were high school sweethearts who'd married in 1975 and purchased their house in Townsend that same year. In the fall of 1987, Priscilla Gustafson was newly pregnant with their third child. On November 16th, Daniel LaPlante broke into the Gustafson home while the family was away for the day. He took several items, including a cordless telephone, two cable TV boxes, a remote control for a cable television, and coins from a Liberty Silver Dollar collection. Stephen LaPlante lived on the property where the family home was located, but in a separate small residence that served as his apartment. Daniel came by his place in mid-November and asked to store some things, including a cable box, in his brother's tool shed. When asked for an explanation, Daniel told his brother he just didn't want his parents to see these things. Daniel also showed Stephen and his friend Michael some of the silver dollars without saying where they came from. Around this time as well, Daniel asked Michael Poloski if he could obtain some bullets for him. Poloski gave him several 22 caliber bullets from a box he had in his home. I must explain Daniel LaPlante's reputation in Townsend during this time. Townsend was a very small town where everyone knew everyone else, at least by sight. The LaPlante family lived in a rundown house near the middle of town. Some locals wondered about the large LaPlante family, where kids, teens, and young adults seemed to come and go at all hours. While Elaine and David Moore and the majority of their brood seemed decent enough, Daniel was a different story. 
He was often called creepy and weird by classmates. Some would admit to being a bit frightened by Daniel LaPlante's unkept lurking presence in their neighborhood. When the burglaries began in Townsend, some people immediately suspected Daniel LaPlante. Then when he committed his bizarre crime in Pepperell and was committed to the psychiatric hospital, the townspeople breathed a sigh of relief. So they weren't too happy when he was able to post bond and was released back into their community. Daniel wasn't gainfully employed, and he was finishing up his high school coursework at home through an independent studies program. Apparently, the school district didn't want him back either. All this culminated in a disturbed and odd young man who had already proven to be a threat to the community, walking around their town freely, and to be honest, giving everyone the heebie-jeebies. They were right to be concerned. Daniel LaPlante had moved beyond terrorizing teens and wielding hatchets. Now in the possession of a firearm and ammunition, a thought took over his mind. In the winter of 1987, he would put his terrible plan into action. Tuesday, December 1st, 1987 was a typical day for Priscilla Gustafson. Her husband Andrew had left early for his law office as she got ready for her day. Just before 8 a.m., Priscilla waved goodbye to her 7-year-old daughter Abigail as the little girl climbed into the school bus that would take her to Spalding Memorial Elementary School. Abby was just days away from her 8th birthday, and she couldn't wait to sit with her friends to talk about plans for her upcoming birthday party. Priscilla, in the first trimester of her third pregnancy, still had lots of energy. The fatigue she normally experienced in her pregnancies wouldn't come until later. This was fortunate because as a preschool teacher, she would need plenty of energy to corral over a dozen three- to five-year-olds all day. Priscilla got herself and Billy ready for their day and then drove them to the Townsend Cooperative Preschool, located in the basement of the church the Gustafsons attended. The children were beginning to get excited about the upcoming Christmas season, so Priscilla and the other teachers had to do a lot more redirecting of their charges to keep their minds focused on the school program each day. So Priscilla Gustafson was tired and grateful to return home, arriving just after 2 p.m. She planned to give Billy a snack and get him settled so she could sit and rest her feet for a bit before starting dinner. Her husband Andy was expected home just after 5.30. But Priscilla had no idea of the horror that awaited her behind the door of number three Saunders Road. Andrew Gustafson had had an eventful day and was ready to celebrate. He'd just closed a real estate deal at his law office and was excited to share the news with Priscilla. He wanted to try to wrestle up a babysitter that evening so he could take his wife out for a celebratory dinner. He'd called home three times that afternoon between 3.30 and 5 p.m., but she hadn't picked up the phone. He speculated that she might have gone out to buy groceries or run some other errand, so he wasn't too concerned, although he did find it odd. But when he arrived at his house around 5.30 p.m., he saw his wife's van parked in its usual spot. What concerned him, however, was that the house appeared to be dark. As he walked up to the door, he could hear no sounds from inside, rare in a home where two small children lived. The front door was locked, and he let himself in with his key. There was no one downstairs, and the lights were off. He called out to his wife, then continued upstairs. When he reached the master bedroom, he stopped, frozen in the doorway. He saw the figure of his wife lying on the bed face down. 
I knew she was dead, Gustafson would later testify, because she was lifeless and had the gray pallor of death to her hands and feet. A pillowcase had been placed over the young mother's head, and a pillow had been placed over that. There were bullet holes in the pillow. Andrew screamed in anguish and ran down the stairs to call the police. When they responded, they found Andrew Gustafson distraught, pacing in the kitchen, wringing his hands and kicking the cabinets. In his shock and horror at discovering his wife murdered, he had not yet searched for his children. Officers entered the bedroom and confirmed that Priscilla Gustafson was dead. She appeared to have been beaten, and it would be determined that she had also been shot twice in the head at close range with a twenty-two caliber weapon. The bullets had been fired through the pillow, most likely to muffle the sound of the gunshots. Officers then searched the house room by room, making more grim discoveries. Five-year-old Billy was found face down in an upstairs bathtub. He was also deceased, and his death would be ruled as a result of drowning. The bathtub had since drained, and just a very shallow amount of water still remained in the tub. Seven-year-old Abby would be found in another bathroom downstairs. She had also been drowned, but had suffered additional injuries. The medical examiner would find evidence of blunt force trauma to her head, as well as a compression wound to her neck. It appeared that the little girl had attempted to fight off her attacker. She had defensive wounds on her arms and legs, and some of her hair had been pulled from her head. The bathtub where she had been drowned still contained several inches of water. Andrew Gustafson was informed that his entire family was dead. He was led away in a police cruiser as he wailed in anguish. The crime scene was processed for evidence. A portion of a condom was found on the floor near where the dead woman was discovered. Semen was found on a corner of the bed cover. Inside the master bedroom closet, a knotted sock was found with saliva on it, likely used to gag Priscilla. Priscilla Gustafson had been raped before she was strangled and shot. Several more ligatures were found in the house, made from a necktie, stockings, and pantyhose that had been knotted and cut. In the kitchen wastebasket were found several torn and crumpled pieces of paper that had been ripped out of pornographic magazines. But there was one strange item of evidence that would provide investigators with a clue as to whom they should be looking for as the perpetrator of this brutal crime. On the counter in the kitchen, they found a glass of beer. A bottle of beer had been taken from the Gustafson's refrigerator, opened, and poured into a glass. However, the glass was nearly full, appearing that whoever had poured it had not drunk from it. Upon seeing this, investigators recalled the invasion of the Bowen home in Pepperell. It was reported that the intruder who'd terrorized the family had opened a bottle of wine he'd found in the home and poured it into two glasses. These glasses were also found full, as if staged and perhaps used to taunt the family or the police. And of course, they knew who had been the perpetrator of that crime, Daniel J. LaPlante, who incidentally lived only a quarter of a mile away from the Gustafsons. When investigators discovered that the Gustafsons' home had been burglarized just weeks before the murders, they immediately suspected LaPlante might be responsible for both crimes. The day after Priscilla, Abigail, and Billy Gustafson were found murdered in their home, investigators arrived at the public library. 
They had been informed by Daniel LaPlante's mother that he had gone there to complete some schoolwork. They found Daniel and questioned him as to his whereabouts the previous day. He said he'd been home alone watching television. He was also questioned about what he'd been wearing. He described his clothing as gray sweatpants, a football shirt, and a pair of Converse sneakers. Detectives didn't have enough evidence to arrest LaPlante, but continued their investigation. Officers and tracking dogs searched the wooded area that separated the Gustafson home and Daniel LaPlante's residence. Sneaker prints had been found in a flower bed near the Gustafson's home. The prints were made by a person wearing a size 11 or 12 Converse sneaker. Daniel LaPlante wore a size 11 shoe and had already admitted to wearing Converse sneakers the previous day. Investigators also noted that the nameplate from the Gustafson home was missing. In the woods, a flannel shirt was found. Wrapped inside of it was the Gustafson's nameplate and soaking wet work gloves. The gloves were processed at the crime lab, and on them, traces of gunshot residue were found. Daniel's family members were also questioned. His brother Stephen described seeing his brother wearing a shirt and gray sweatpants on the day of the murders. The description of the shirt matched the one found in the woods. A search warrant was issued and a search of the LaPlante home conducted. Taken from the residence were the gray sweatpants and a pair of damp socks found in Daniel's closet, among other items. By that evening, investigators believed they had enough to make an arrest. But when they returned to the LaPlante home, Daniel, having seen them arrive, jumped off the back porch and ran off into the woods. An all-points bulletin was issued and a search for the fugitive began immediately. Over 100 officers, as well as tracking dogs, helicopters, and several state and local police jurisdictions were employed in the search for Daniel LaPlante. The next day, LaPlante broke into a home in Pepperell and stole a 32 caliber revolver and helped himself to some food. He had now been on the run for over 12 hours. As the manhunt widened, LaPlante grew desperate. Late that afternoon, a high school senior was home alone when he answered a knock at the door. LaPlante stood on his porch, pointing a gun at him and demanded to be let in. The boy refused and ran to the phone to call police. LaPlante fled. Pamela McKella, another Pepperell residence, returned home to find LaPlante inside. At gunpoint, he ordered her to sit. Her phone rang and he allowed her to answer it, holding the gun at her head the whole time. It was McKella's aunt who had called to warn her about the suspected murderer who was on the run and to tell her to lock her doors. When she hung up, LaPlante asked the young woman if she knew who he was. She said she did. He wanted to know what was going on outside. McKella described the large police presence, telling LaPlante that police were everywhere searching for him with dogs, patrol cars, and in helicopters. She said that the news was all over the newspapers and on television. LaPlante became nervous and asked, Is it about the Townsend murders? She told him it was. LaPlante then forced her to get into her van and drive him out of town, still at gunpoint. As she slowed down at a stop sign, McKella jumped out of the van, rolling into the street. When she looked up, Daniel had taken the wheel and driven away. The description of the van stolen by the fugitive was broadcast, and soon it was being pursued by a police helicopter. The van was recognized by an officer in the town of Ayer and stopped. As the officer approached the vehicle, LaPlante jumped out and fled on foot. He ran towards a lumberyard that was just about to close for the day. He threatened the yard employee with the weapon and gained entry to the property. 
Police were close behind him, and desperate to get away, LaPlante hid. Just before dark, LaPlante was found hiding in a crawl space beneath a large industrial dumpster in the lumberyard. He was taken into custody. LaPlante was booked on the triple murder charge and a host of other charges before being transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital to be psychologically evaluated. There was a mountain of evidence against Daniel LaPlante by the time his trial began in March of 1987. A blood test identified him as a type A secretor, the same status identified on the semen stain found on the bed cover where Priscilla Gustafson's body was found. Fiber samples taken from the sock, believed to be used as a gag, matched the gray shirt LaPlante had been wearing on the day of the murders. Hair that was a match to Abigail Gustafson's was found on LaPlante's socks and sweatpants. Prosecutors' theory of the crime was that LaPlante had gone to the home to rob it. He'd attacked Priscilla Gustafson when she returned home, surprising him in the act. It's possible, however, and this is my belief, that LaPlante had gone to the Gustafson home planning to rape Priscilla and then kill her so as not to leave any witnesses. We know that he'd already burglarized the Gustafson's home, which was made evident when several items taken during the burglary weeks before the murders were found in LaPlante's room. Other items were turned over by his brother, who told investigators that he'd been requested to hide them by Daniel. LaPlante had most likely been watching the family and knew Priscilla's routine. It's believed that he waited for her to come home with Billy and had killed both the mother and her son before Abby returned home around 3.30 p.m. Abby had fought her attacker, causing LaPlante to leave behind crucial evidence, the hair and fibers found on his clothes and in his home. Five months after the murders, LaPlante's brother Stephen and friend Michael Polowski found the gun used to murder Priscilla Gustafson in the glove compartment of an abandoned vehicle on the LaPlante's property. Stephen would alert his mother and stepfather of the find, and after consulting their attorney, Elaine and David Moore and their attorney met with police to turn over the weapon. Polowski also gave investigators the bullets that remained in the same box as the ones he'd given LaPlante. Ballistics tests would confirm that they were the same brand, caliber, and casing composition as the bullets used in the murder. LaPlante's defense attorney called no witnesses of his own and did not put LaPlante on the stand. Nor did the defense allow the previous bizarre crime committed by LaPlante to come into evidence. Perhaps it would have been a good strategy to describe how their client had hid inside the walls of another home, donned an odd costume, and threatened the family with a hatchet to make a case for insanity or at least diminish capacity. However, LaPlante's defense did neither. Daniel LaPlante, now 18 years old, was tried in adult court. On October 25, 1988, he was found guilty of three charges of first-degree murder after the jury deliberated for just five hours. LaPlante showed no emotion as the verdict was read. Judge Robert A. Barton addressed LaPlante before handing down his sentence. Quote, There are some who would say, Mr. LaPlante, that you should receive the same sentence you imposed on the Gustafson family, that is, death by ligature or hanging. But we have no death penalty in Massachusetts, unquote. Instead, the judge imposed the maximum sentence allowed, three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. But in 2013, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Superior Court ruled it unconstitutional to sentence a minor to life without parole for crimes committed before they were 18 years old. 
arguing that it could be considered cruel and unusual punishment. LaPlante's life sentences were now commuted to life with the possibility of parole. Each of his sentences could now be considered for parole after 15 years. Since they were to be served consecutively, LaPlante would still have to serve 45 years. His first parole eligibility would not be considered until after his 62nd birthday. LaPlante would file an appeal to have his sentence reduced. It was ruled upon in Superior Court in 2017. The judge ruled against allowing LaPlante to serve a shorter sentence, reminding him that he'd committed, quote, three distinct and brutal murders, end quote. LaPlante was evaluated by a prison psychologist who reported to the judge that the inmate was still, quote, without remorse for his crimes. The psychologist gave LaPlante credit for the progress he had made in prison towards his educational and vocational goals, but said he continued to display antisocial personality disorder and lack of empathy. As it stands now, Daniel LaPlante will not be eligible for his first parole hearing until 2032. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you'd like to hear one more chapter in the series, Ghosts in the Attic, you can get a bonus episode available to Patreon members only. You can receive ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, exclusive merchandise, and more by becoming a Patreon member starting at just $2 per month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and to join. Thank you. Don't forget to register for CrimeCon House Arrest for a full day of online presentations, workshops, case discussions, and FaceTime with your favorite true crime podcasters. I'll be there, and I hope to see you. Virtually, of course. It's all streaming live on November 21st, 2020. So register today at crimecon.com slash housearrest. We'll be announcing giveaways for free live-only passes. To make sure you're entered to win, just follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod to get the details. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another.